Well, you can turn to that passage if you haven't yet. Uh, if you're borrowing a Bible from the back, or if you need one, there are Bibles back there. It's page 254 in those. Um, and we're going to take uh, our, our first 14 verses of, of 1 Samuel 23. And, and in these verses, uh, really, we have David right where we left him last time. He's out, on the, out, in the, out in the wilderness. He's still on the run from Saul. And, and Saul, as we saw last time, and as we'll see even more this time, uh, with King Saul, things are only getting worse. So not only is Saul continuing to refuse to, to give up the throne of Israel, even though the Lord has rejected him as king, but Saul is continuing, and even with, with more fervency, he's continuing to pursue David, trying to kill him. Uh, Saul won't give up his position. Instead, he wants to kill God's anointed king. And, and now it's not just that Saul is willing to kill David, but, but we, we started to see this last time, and we'll see it more this time. Saul is actually turning on God's own people. It's not just that Saul is out to get David because David poses a threat to his throne, but, but in, the, in the wickedness of Saul's heart, things are progressing so much that he's willing to turn on cities under his own rule. So he's turned on the city of Nob. Uh, here he turns on the city of Keilah. Instead of being the king who protects the people of God, he actually proves to be the anti-king. He is against even God's own people now. Uh, so things are only going from bad to worse with regard to Saul, but that doesn't mean that David's done. The Lord's purposes are prevailing, and in this chapter, uh, we find David still out in the wilderness. He's on the run from Saul, but while he's on the run from Saul, David ex continues to experience not only the preserving power of God, but he also continues to exercise himself in the calling to which he's been called. David is the anointed king, and he continues to be faithful to the Lord despite the very contrary context that he finds himself in. And as we've mentioned throughout our studies, while, while David's situation is unique, there is a very real point of identification for us in all this, because while David, while David is out in a, in a literal wilderness, uh, we know, as the Apostle Paul reminds us, we know these Old Testament stories are here as an example for us, as we follow the Lord along in faith. And so as we think along those lines of, of the wilderness motif, we can identify uh, with, the, with the kind of language that's here, with the kind of narrative scenario that's here at a certain level, as we find ourselves as Christian believers living out in the world, seeking to faithfully follow uh, the Lord Jesus, all the while uh, facing circumstances of hardship and, and contrariness along the way. Uh, so, so, for example, uh, when John Bunyan, that, that 17th century pastor, when he went to write Pilgrim's Progress from his prison cell, uh, if, you, if you've read that story, maybe you remember how he how he begins his allegory. He starts uh, setting the stage for the story he's about to tell by by saying it, 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 setting it all in the context of a dream that he had. And so he begins Pilgrim's Progress in this way. He says, "As I walk through the wilderness of this world, you remember that? As I walk through the wilderness of this world, I lighted on a certain place where there was a den, which is an old word for jail." Uh, where there was a den, and there he says he dreamed this dream and saw and saw this man and clothed in rags and so on, and the story goes on. Now, but but you see how, how Bunyan is framing his own experience as he begins the story. He's saying, as I walk through the wilderness of this world, he's identifying uh, this wilderness picture as being part of his own experience, uh, which is which is language that's common to the Christian experience all all down through the ages, uh, even even centuries earlier. Augustine, he wrote a short little book entitled uh, "Of the Teacher." And, and in that very philosophical book on the attainment of knowledge, uh, Augustine speaks of Christ 
as the great teacher who imparts his word to us. And he says he's the great teacher who imparts his word to us as he guides us through the wilderness. So, so Augustine, even in this high philosophical work of, 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 of the attainment of knowledge, he's also willing to engage in this kind of metaphorical, poetic language that recognizes the life we live in the world is a life we live with Christ's guidance, but it is very much a wilderness experience. We find ourselves uh, in, in situations of, of difficulty. And so this kind of motif that we have here with David, it doesn't form our, our life of faith. And, and we recognize that it doesn't take much for us to, to see the parallels, because uh, no matter the seasons of life we may be in, uh, there, there, there do come those times where we find ourselves in places of danger, places of trials, places uh, that reflect significant uncertainty and hardship and these kinds of things. And as we come to this section of 1 Samuel, well, David is in the midst of his wilderness experience on the run from Saul. In David's experience, we actually discover that there's something very practical here in terms of help for us this morning, not just because we can identify with a wilderness type of struggle uh, like David is having, but there's more specific help here in this passage in that in the context of these verses, David is facing hard things. And, and, and as he does, he's seeking the guidance of God. So, so he's facing conditions where, where he doesn't have immediate clarity on what it looks like to move forward faithfully. He doesn't have that. And, and, and instead of merely relying on his own understanding at that point, or instead of relying on his, on his military prowess, or even instead of relying on the relationships that he's built now with these, these people who have gathered with him back in the cave of Adullam, instead of David immediately relying on those kind of external elements that might bring him a modicum of comfort or, or even direction, instead, we find him turning to the Lord for help. He, he turns to the Lord, uh, desiring to go forward in his own intentions according to what God says. He wants, he wants God's word on the matter. And, and so in this, we can be encouraged in our own reliance on the Lord's guidance as, as we navigate uh, the wilderness experiences of this, of this world ourselves. Because here's David seeking the Lord's word of guidance in a wilderness situation. And, and we can certainly identify with that need. Whether it's the, the wilderness experience of, of relationships, which can be so difficult, whether it's the wilderness experience of, of pressures that are unexpected and, and leave us feeling uncertain and, and, and not clear on what to do next, whether it's, it's conditions where we're facing the world and, and, and in those places the world seems to be opposed to us and we're dealing with those kind of pressures, uh, we, we know our need for the Lord's word of guidance on these kinds of matters. We need more. Uh, we need more than simply our own intuition. We need more than simply our own devices. We need to know what God says about these things. And that's, and that's what we have David setting an example, uh, David's example here for us this morning. He, he seeks God's word on the matter. And, and we recognize, again, the deep need we have for this. Uh, we, we ourselves have wisdom. The Lord has given us wisdom. The Lord has given us one another. He's given us the counsel of good friends. Uh, he's given us common knowledge as we study and learn and all of these things. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, as Christian believers, we can confess that we need the Lord's creative and redeeming word in our lives. We need to know what he says, because what he says ultimately leads to life. And that's, and that's the word we need present in our lives, not least of all in the, in the hardships we face. And so, and so here we have some help along these lines. Um, we're going to divide the text just into two sections this morning, 
And we'll begin by looking at verses 1 to 5, um, where we see uh, David seeking the Lord's word of guidance on matters, uh, beginning in the sphere of his immediate responsibility. So, so David is seeking the Lord's word of guidance as it relates to his sphere of immediate responsibility. Now, even in saying that, we're familiar with, with our spheres of responsibility. When we're younger, uh, that, that looks uh, something like uh, being studious at school. It looks like engaging well with our parents and family life. It looks like building relationships that are, that are fruitful and those kinds of things. We recognize that in all of those areas, we're servants of Jesus Christ. We're serving God in, in our life and in those various responsibilities that come to us. And then as we get older, uh, the responsibilities, they, they can tend to, to pile up a little more seriously. We have financial responsibilities. We have unique responsibilities with our careers. And, and as, as family life develops, those relationships become critical. And we have unique responsibilities within our, our structures of friendship and, and family units. And in those places, uh, we can oftentimes find our most uh, serious pressures because those are the areas that matter most. It's in the spheres of our responsibility that we ultimately and regularly find that the greatest pressures uh, becoming present to us. And that's certainly the case with David and his sphere of responsibility as we find him at the outset of this passage. Uh, because we can remember that David's responsibility is that of being God's anointed king. And if we remember back to chapter 9, when, when the monarchy of Israel was beginning, God was speaking to Samuel and through Samuel during that time. And back in chapter 9, just as Saul was going to take his place as king of Israel, the Lord defined the king's role in Israel, the king's responsibility in Israel. The Lord defined that in a large part by saying, the king will save my people from the Philistines. So, so this is a big part of what God's king is going to do. A significant purpose that the king of Israel would fulfill, the main responsibility is that he's going to be delivering the people of God from, from those who would otherwise harm them from the enemies of God's people. And a lot of the time, most of the time in these, in these historical days, uh, the enemy was, was the Philistines. And now here we have David. And, and even back when David entered our narrative as the king after God's own heart, even then, what, what was the first and biggest thing David did back in chapter 17? What was one of the ways we, we knew? What was one of the, the ways the Lord confirmed that David is the king that we need? Well, David went out to battle against Goliath, the Philistine, and he drove back the Philistines when they were arrayed against Israel and causing Israel terror. God's king came and he delivered the people from the Philistines, just like God said his king was supposed to do. And, and, so, and so here we are now in chapter three, or 23, and, and a whole lot has taken place since the chapter 17 incident. But David is still very aware that he's God's anointed king, so much so that in, in the end of chapter 22, remember how he said, come and be with me? There's David on the, on the run, but, 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 but the, the priest shows up. He says, come and be with me. You'll be safe with me. How could David have such confidence that he'd be safe on the run from Saul? Well, he knows. He knows that he's the Lord's anointed king and the Lord's purposes are going to prevail. So David's very much aware of his role. And, and, uh, and what is the king's job? If, if, he's, if he's thinking about this clearly, well, the king's job is to deliver the people of God from their enemies, namely, in this context, the Philistines. That, that, that's what the king is supposed to do. And so as chapter 23 begins, what's going on? Well, the town of Keilah in Israel, they're under attack from the Philistines. It's interesting. If there's one thing we know about the Philistines, it's that they're, they're, they're very lazy farmers. We see this 
as their pattern, actually, even back in the book of Judges. What they'll do is they'll wait until, until a group has actually brought their harvest in, and then they'll go and plunder that harvest and take the grain for themselves. As we see here, they even bring their livestock, it seems, to graze on the produce that Keilah has already had. This is a very much a Philistine motif. They come and they, and they, take, and they take the things that have, been, that have been stored away by their enemy cities. And, and Keilah, uh, they would be uniquely vulnerable to Philistine attack because they were only about 12 miles from the town of, of Gath, the Philistine town of Gath, which David has recently escaped from. Uh, but they're near uh, to the Philistine towns, and they're fairly far removed from other, other Israelite cities. And so they're, they're in this vulnerable place. And uh, so here's what happens. The Philistines have come, and they're raiding the threshing floors at Keilah. They've come to take the crop. Their army is arrayed against uh, Keilah. And David is well aware of his responsibility as king. However, these are really strange times. Uh, on the one hand, when the Philistines are attacking, the question of, of what should God's anointed king do, that question has a pretty obvious answer. The king should fight for God's people and save them. We know that because God said that. We also know that because it's what Saul is not doing. And so anytime we wonder what a king should do, we just look at Saul and see what he's not doing, and then we know, right? As Saul's just sitting there, he's not helping this town. In fact, he's going to attack the town himself. And, and so, so the king is supposed to be delivering, uh, except as so often is part of our own experience too, even though David's responsibilities in that sense are clear, he's now having to decide what to do when the circumstances are anything but normal. And, and, and we can have this experience. We, we, we face something and we think, but well, if, if, if this were just ordinary time or if this situation were, were regular and not so strange, then I'd know what faithfulness to God looks like. But, but you know, right now, things are particularly different for me. Uh, I'm, I'm going through this period where things just aren't what I expected them to be. Things are murky in this one. And, and, I, and I'm not quite sure what to do. And, that, and that's what's going on here with David. Because while David's responsibility as king is clear, the king saves the people from the Philistines, while the responsibility is clear, the circumstances are, are murky. They're complicated. Because while David is the king, he's not remotely in any kind of place of, of broader royal acceptance, is he? At least with the Goliath episode, Saul endorsed him. Now David's not just removed from the, from the royal favor of Saul, but, but he's the one who's having to run away from the king. So, 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 so this makes things very complicated. David is not in a royal position as we would expect. So if David comes out to fight, as, as king should, Saul's going to know right where he is. And, and how can David be Saul's king if Saul, or if God's king, if Saul just finds him and kills him? And the, and the whole thing is a total mess. And then along with that, David's men have some, have some very serious concerns along these lines. So as we see in verse 3, David's men say, you know, we're really afraid in Judah. Like just our normal day with you, David, we spend a lot of time being afraid because of Saul. How much more if we go to Keilah against the Philistine forces? So David's men, they're, they're very much dealing with this fear in their own life, just in their day-to-day -day concerns about the fact that Saul and his armies trying to find them and kill them. That's bad enough. But now this Philistines are attacking situation has come up. And, and the men are concerned about being, being doubly afraid. Saul's after them, and now we're going to fight against the Philistines. Verse 3, they reference the fact, literally in Hebrew, that the Philistines are drawn up in battle lines. They're not just poking around over in Keilah. They're there in force. So, so David's men are, are worried. 
So, so put all this together, and, and on the one hand, David's responsibility as king is, is really clear. Deliver the people from the hand of the Philistines. That's God's commission to his king. But David's circumstances are really, really, really not ideal. They're, they're not what you would expect them to be in terms of a normal kingly scenario for David to go out to war. He's the one who's hiding in caves. He's not the one who's on the throne. His men are afraid because the one who shouldn't be king is after them. The whole situation is a total mess. But, but we, can, we can identify with David's situation in, in this way in that, in that it's one of those situations where, where you can desire to be faithful to the Lord. Clearly, David desires to be faithful to the Lord. You desire to exercise yourself well in the sphere of your immediate responsibility. We know what this is. That's the compulsion of our heart. It's Whether, whether it's family life or in our job situation or, or in a particular relationship, we want to do well, but the situation is just so far from textbook. It's complicated. And how do we respond to that? You know, you know if things were normal, we know what obeying God looked like, but it's just so far from normal. Well, how does David respond? What we see here is that he inquires of the Lord. He asks the Lord what to do in these verses. If you remember back in, in chapter 22, we were told that Gad the prophet was with David. So maybe David went to Gad the prophet to help him inquire of the Lord. We're not told how David inquired here. We're just told that he did. And, and David doesn't do it just once here, but actually twice in this immediate setting. So in verse 2, the first time David inquires of the Lord, he asks, should I launch an attack against these Philistines? And in that verse, we read the Lord answers. And basically, even grammatically in Hebrew, he says almost the exact same thing that he said back in chapter 9. Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. He gives David the exact same commission that he's given to the kings back in chapter 9. So God gives this direct command, restating what he's already said. And then, because David's men are really concerned about things in verse 3, David goes back and asks the Lord again. Just, just to get some clarity. The, the men, they're, they're, they're concerned. Verse 4, David, David asks, the Lord answers, and he says, and he says, go at once to Keilah. There's the command. So, so if anything, things are only getting tighter. Go to Keilah, David, for I will hand the Philistines over to you. In this case, God attends the command with a promise. That David's going to have victory. And so what does David do? Well, verse 5, he goes to Keilah, he fights the Philistines, he defeats them, and he rescues the people. He does what kings are supposed to do, and he has success in that. Now, now, now if we can just pause here and, and think about this for a moment in the, in the context of the, of the guidance of God's word in our spheres of responsibility, uh, not least of all when our situations can seem very unique and out of the ordinary and not normal, there is, there is something that's really noteworthy here, and we see it as we consider what the Lord says, even though the circumstances aren't normal, and as we consider uh, what David does in response, even though the circumstances aren't normal. So, so just, just think this out with me here for a minute. The, the king's responsibility is clear. Deliver the people from the Philistines. This is God's commission to the kings back in chapter 9. And it would be easy in a in a chapter three situation like chapter 23 situation like this, it would be easy for David to say, yes, I understand that's God's commission to the king. In fact, I even think that's a good idea. And, and if you remember, I have done that historically myself from time to time. I've, I've been obedient there, uh, except right now things are really different. And I don't think that really applies to me in these present circumstances, because just look at how strange everything is. 
I recognize that's the king's job, but I'm hardly on the throne. Saul's trying to kill me. I'm not living in royalty. I'm living in caves. So, so while that's the normal commission from God, that's the normal word from God on the matter, my situation is just a bit, a bit unique, and I don't think that's God's word for me right now. And David could have just you know, stopped thinking about the whole thing. But that's not what David did. He went to the Lord, and instead of the Lord saying, oh, yes, David, that that." That chapter nine command that that was that earlier that was binding, but I know things are really strange for you right now. This isn't the normal way things go, and so you can go ahead and forget about what I said earlier, and you can just go on and maybe take a different path. You just pick pick one that seems good to you and run with that for a while. We'll get back to that chapter nine thing later when your world is normal. Does God say that to us? No. What does He say? God says the exact same thing to David that He already said back in chapter nine. What does the king do? Well, the king goes and fights against the Philistines and delivers God's people. So he says that to David, and David goes, and he does it. But, but that's such a word to us in the wilderness, because a great temptation for us when things become dark and heavy, and not what we might define as normal in our lives of faith, a great temptation is to start thinking that, that, that God may speak directly to us through the Scriptures. Well, we know that's, we know that's true and sure, but maybe that word isn't for me right now, because after all, my situation is quite a bit different. You know, that's a, that's a word from God for normal days. That's not a word from God for abnormal days. That's not a word from God for the, for the kind of situation I'm facing right now. Uh, God's addressing the normal times with those kind of commands and instructions. And, and, and since things are unique for me, that must not be God's word to me. To which a narrative like this comes with instructional correction for us. Because the word of God doesn't stand only on the day David is comfortable in the palace. The word of God stands when David is spending his nights in the cave. The word of God always stands. The king takes down the Philistines, whether he's living in a palace or a cave. And then I wonder if maybe you faced something, maybe even, even recently you, you faced something and you know what God's word is on the matter. But at the same time, there is that temptation. We experience this. There's that temptation where because the situation seems unique, because it seems different for me, it's very wildernessy, uh, because maybe I'm different, my circumstances are different. I just don't think what God says is, is something to be obeyed right now. It, it doesn't really apply to me. But we have to be able to look at a text like this and say that's not true. First of all, just in our general understanding of who the Lord of glory is, God is never surprised by our circumstances. He knows them and he's over all things. And his word is never so small as to be disqualified by whatever the immediate context may present. David asks of the Lord, should I do this? The Lord says, go and do what I already said you should go and do. And maybe that's something for us to consider this morning. It's, it's, worth, it's worth asking ourselves. If we've been thinking we have, a, we have a special get out of obedience to Jesus on this one card because of the nature of circumstances we face. I'm different. The situation's different. It can be so easy to justify a disregard for what God says because of what we're going through. This, this job thing. You know, normally I, I would be faithful in this way, but this job situation is just so much different. So I'm not going to have to apply that, that word of God uh, for me here in this or this or this parenting thing or this financial thing or this marriage thing any any of all all these categories of responsibility for us for me the general truth of the word of god it regularly applies except over here it just isn't going to for a little while the testimony of david's experience here is to say that's that's not a safe place to be at all in the wilderness we appeal to the lord for guidance 
and in the spheres of our responsibility in our life of faith, the Lord says to us, obey the word I've already provided for you. Obey the word that I've made clear for you. For us, that's a, that's a call to obey the scriptures. Part of humility in our life of faith is yielding by God's help, but yielding to the word of God, despite what we may think is best, what we may think is normal, how we may think things, things ought to go. So, so there are no special circumstances when it comes to going in the direction God prescribed. There's, there's forgiveness for our failures. Praise God for that through Jesus. There's forgiveness for our failures, but there's no permission. There's no special circumstances clause. Even if you're a king living in a cave, there's no, you don't have to obey God's word today clause uh, in, the, in, the, in the life of faith. And so, and so the Lord comes with his command and he attends his command with a promise. And, and there's ultimately no other way but, but to find life in what the Lord calls us to do. And David does. He finds success in that. So, so that's first. David sought the Lord's guidance in the sphere of his immediate responsibility. And the word comes to David uh, plainly in a, in a repeated fashion. And with this promise of success, we take comfort in that and be compelled ourselves in obedience by that. And then uh, as we go on here, we see that David uh, sought, sought the Lord's word for guidance, not, not just in the context of his responsibility, uh, but also he does this when there's a need for, we can call it rescuing clarity, a need for rescuing clarity. This is verses 6 to 14. Um, so in these verses now, David has just been obedient to the word of the Lord. He's affected his role as king properly, delivered the people who were in trouble from the Philistines. Um, however, now things do take a further turn. And, and it's a good reminder uh, that, that we need to be careful in how we think about obedience and its outcome sometimes in our life. We can, all, we, we, we can find ourselves sometimes qualifying whether we should have or should have not obeyed by how well things seem to go immediately after that obeying or not obeying situation and we can say things like well i you know i, I didn't obey there but it actually turned out real okay and so so things must be all right with that then or i did obey and things turned out so badly maybe i maybe i shouldn't have no 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 we recognize in the life of faith obedience is ours events are the lord's and in this case obedience has led david to a place now of, of even greater difficulty he's been faithful but that doesn't mean that he's going to be immune from trouble and we see this now in verse 7, as Saul does get the report that David's gone to Keilah. So, so David was doing a fine job hiding out. Now he's become public as he's defeated the, the Philistines. And Saul's very excited about this, especially because Keilah is a walled city. You know, so if David's in there, he can be trapped. We can lay siege to the city and, and we can really deal with him now. In fact, it's interesting how Saul frames things here. Um, if, if you're looking at the text, especially if when you remember last week where, where Saul had determined to kill the priests of Nob, and, and he instructed the men who were with him to kill those priests. You remember that? And the men wouldn't do it. It was too, it was too gnarly of a job. Doeg the Edomite, he ended up doing it. Uh, but Saul's men wouldn't do it. And, and in that, we actually start seeing this evidence that Saul's grip on his kingly authority is, is decreasing significantly. His, his, his own soldiers aren't obeying him. So things are spiraling for him. Um, and so he does what wicked leaders down through history often do to garner the allegiance of people. It's very interesting what he does here. In verse 7, what does Saul say? Well, Saul says, God is on his side. God has given David into my hand, is, is what he said. And he does this, obviously, in order to manipulate the folks who are with him. Obviously, this is a non-truth. In fact, the very last line of this section, verse 14, is the exact contradiction 
of this statement. God did not hand David over to Saul. Saul says that God is handing him over. No doubt he's trying to support, the bolster support that, that he's lost, you know, by claiming God is on his side and all this. Uh, so he tells this lie, uh, and, but it's, a, it's an effective manipulation tactic, as we see oftentimes down through history. God is on my side, so follow me. Uh, it works here. Saul and, and his army, we're told, they start towards Keilah to besiege David and his men. And then through some kind of intelligence network of his own, David gets word about this in verse 9. And he asked the priest, Abiathar, who's just joined him back in verse 6, uh, David asked Abiathar to bring the ephod. And the ephod was, was a priestly garment, and it was in the ephod that the priests would carry the urim and thummim, uh, which we don't know exactly what that was. However, it had something to do with casting lots, which is uh, you know, something equivalent to maybe flipping a coin to discern the will of God. It was a regular practice. Uh, throughout the narrative of, of, of the Old Testament scriptures. Um, but, but in the priestly ephod, there was this Urim and Thummim. And so David is asking this, this uh, Abiathar, the priest, who had just fled from Nob, you remember, he's with David now, um, from that, that whole massacre situation. He's asking uh, the, the priest to come help him inquire of the Lord. And, and the first question David has for the Lord now in this is, would the citizens of Keilah hand me over to Saul? So David knows that Saul's coming for him. And he says, if Saul comes, are they going to hand me over to him? Which seems like a strange question to ask, especially since David just delivered the town. Except that we do remember the situation at Nob where, where David had been helped there. And then Saul had that whole city wiped out. So, so no doubt all cities in Israel are growing very concerned about what's going to happen to them if they're caught helping David. So, so David knows he needs to find out. Are they, are they going to give me up if Saul comes? And, and, and then his, his second question here is, will Saul actually come? So David has these questions. Will they give me up? And is Saul actually coming here to get me? And the response from the Lord is, yes, Saul will come. And yes, the people in the town will give you up. And that's what David needed to know. And so given this clarifying word from the Lord, David escapes from the city with his men. It is notable that he has 600 now instead of 400, like he had at the beginning of the last chapter. So David's numbers are increasing. And in verse 13, he moves, we're told, from place to place in order to evade Saul. Saul ultimately ends up going to Keilah when he hears that David got away, verse 13. And, and then in verse 14, David stays out in the wilderness, and Saul keeps searching for him, even though the Lord continues to keep David safe. Uh, the Lord is not giving David into Saul's hands. So David uh, continues to get away. Uh, but, but again, as we, as we think on this, we have a very helpful framework for, for God's guidance in wilderness situations. Um, because you notice here that David is, is very much concerned for the safety of the town. He's worried that Saul's going to come and wipe the town out. And, and he's obviously worried for his own safety too. Are they, gonna, are they going to give me up? And, and so he comes to the Lord with, with this basic question. If we could summarize David's question, that the question is, will I be safe here? And will the people... Uh, in my care, be safe here with me. That's what David wants to know when he, when he asks the Lord uh, what, what's going to happen. Will I be safe here? And will the people who are with me, who are in my care, be safe here? And, and in that question is really a, a world of practicality for us as we face various things. Will I be safe if I stay here? And will the people I'm responsible for be safe here? Because we, we face situations of, of, of great pressure. And under that pressure, things can become dangerous in different ways. Obviously, we're not uh, locked inside a walled city. But as we face pressures 
in our lives, there are dangers that can, uh, that can start to rise up in our hearts and our situations. Our attitudes change under pressure. Do you notice that? Our, our, our resistance against sin tends to change under pressure. We find ourselves indulging, maybe speaking in ways we shouldn't speak. Our resolve weakens. Graces tend to reduce and, and temptations tend to increase under pressure as we face various situations. At least that's true for me. It would make me feel better if you nodded. So I knew that was also true for you. Um, but, but, but in those experiences, we can, we can be comforted by knowing we can open our Bibles and ask the questions, will I be safe if I stay here? Will the people in my care be safe if I stay here? I've, I've told you before about this experience, but it, it struck me as I was studying this week, thinking through this, uh, about that season of life early on in, in, our, in our marriage where I was working at the motorcycle shop, which was so much fun in so many ways. Uh, but at the same time, that shop was a place that was just, just, just full of various temptations uh, that, that, that were absolutely counterproductive to a life of faithfulness. The guys, I, I enjoyed the guys a lot, but as you can imagine, well, you just imagine what, what bike shop guys are like, and that's what they were like. And that's what it was like all the time there. And it got to the point uh, where I where I ended up leaving sooner than I sooner than I'd planned to leave. The money was good, but it was not a place I could stay and be safe. And 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 at the time, I was thinking about it this week. I wish I would have had this passage in my mind because it took a while to get there. But this passage gives us the question that that answers that answers those kinds of concerns. Will I be safe if I stay here? We can be in those kind of relationships. We can be in those kind of situations in our working environment where that question can be a very potent question to ask. Am I going to remain safe? Am I, am I going to remain faithful to the living God if I stay in this condition? Right? We can have those attitudes develop in our life and we can start to recognize them or maybe a close friend or spouse recognizes them for us. And we can ask the question, will I be safe? Will the people in my care be safe if I remain in this place? And as we face those kind of circumstances, we can ask that question. And under the word of God, we can answer that question. We know what it means to follow him faithfully. And it may mean, as it means for David here, it, in David's case, it's time to go. It's time to be, to be done with that situation that's causing him, uh, that's going to cause uh, a lack of safety for the people who he's with. And for us, that may mean leaving in different kind of ways. Right? I may need to lead, uh, leave off this a demeanor that I've been presenting in my family life lately. I may, to, I may need to leave off this bitterness that I've been cultivating because as I cultivate this, things are not safe for me. Things are not safe for the people I love. I may need to leave off uh, these kind of, these kind of uh, uh, relationships even maybe that I'm pursuing because those are not ultimately going to leave me in a place of, in a place of righteousness and, and, and following Christ faithfully. But, but in this question, again, is a world of help for us because we find ourselves sometimes sitting in places, wondering if we should stay in places and, and, and whether those are places of our heart's posture or very physical places like the motorcycle shop I was at, uh, there can be these places we find ourselves that just are not a place where, where righteousness can flourish. And there's a time to go. And there's a time to leave off of those things. David sees this is not, not going to be a place of safety. And so, and so he, determines, he determines to go. So will I be safe if I stay here? Uh, that's, a, that's a question that, uh, that we can ask of our own hearts. And it's, an, and it's an amazing how the Lord can work conviction along these lines. Sometimes, sometimes we can ask that question and use it as an excuse to leave a place the Lord has called us to be that's hard, right? We can ask that question. We can think, should I stay here? And, and sometimes it can be very easy to answer, no, I shouldn't. 
simply because being here is hard and challenging. Uh, but that's not that's not that's not a good enough reason. Oftentimes, the Lord has us in hard and challenging places for His purposes, and that is often a place that we need to stay. So, when we're asking these questions, we recognize that while we ask it with our Bibles open, it's also wise to ask these questions in the counsel of godly friends and the counsel of our Christian community, because these answers uh, we we need help we need help uh, discerning uh, discerning well. So the Lord speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us and he reminds us that, uh, that, that staying in, in, other, in other ways can be very dangerous. Staying in the, in the ways that I'm speaking. Staying in the thoughts I'm cultivating. Staying in the company I'm keeping. Staying always, uh, staying doesn't always reflect God's purposes for me. Like, like David here, sometimes it's time to go. And so, and so we find that that's, that's helpful. It's something worth meditating on. Will it be safe for me to stay here? And then again, if it's if it's if the answer is no, it's it's time to move in ways that align with God's word. And then that really is the amazing thing about David all through this narrative. He moves in ways that align with God's word. Well, wouldn't it be something if 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 we could all be down on our knees and just say, oh, Lord, throughout the entirety of our day, through that throughout the entirety of my life, if I could just move in perfect alignment with your word. What, what, what joy and what flourishing there would be in that? What, what, what peace of heart there would be? It wouldn't mean that there weren't hard days, but there'd be great peace in that. And we see here, David is doing that so well in this text. He's moving in ways that align with God's word. And, and we know that David won't always do that well. David's going to fall and David's going to fall badly at certain points along the way. But in this passage, David is still an amazing picture of the way the anointed king moves according to the word of the Lord. And ultimately, as we know, this points us forward to what Jesus will do perfectly. Even if we think about the way this narrative is laid out, what is the very first thing we see happening here? Well, we see David entering a place of danger and rescuing God's people according to God's word. Who, who is Jesus for us? He's the one who entered the situation of our humanity, who entered the woeful reality of our world in order to rescue us according to God's word, according to God's promise. And then from there, David experienced the real threat of death as he brings rescue to God's people. It put him in a very dangerous and precarious position, according to God's word. And what about Christ himself? Christ wasn't just threatened with death. Christ actually subjected himself to death itself on the cross to bring about the rescue according to God's promise. And then David, David, he was ultimately preserved by God. Death, death didn't win for David and Jesus. What do we see there? But Jesus is ultimately rescued. Jesus on Resurrection Sunday, death can't keep its grip on him. He wasn't ultimately given into the hand of his enemies, but Jesus proved victorious. This whole narrative ultimately is giving us a wonderful picture of what Jesus will come and do perfectly. David does it well here, but with David, we're, we're struggling with that constant awareness that there's stuff coming. David can't be the guy. We've even seen stuff already with his deception and some of these things. David can't be the guy, but he's pointing us forward to the one who will be the one. And in knowing Christ and in seeing Christ's perfect obedience, not only do we have that compelling motivation that if Christ is for us, we can live our lives in these ways, knowing that he's the one who empowers us in faithfulness along these lines. But we can also know that if Christ is for us, if he's the one who is obeyed perfectly, instead of our faltering times being totally disastrous in our lives, those faltering times which come can simply be renewing reminders that as we come to Christ, we come to him, not as the one who constant, we're not the ones who are constantly obeying the word of God perfectly, but we come to the one who did and who renews us in that. 
because the burden, the weight of this text, it can be convicting. I, I am in places where I recognize I need to be inquiring of the word of the Lord and then obeying it significantly, even though it can be hard for me. And we're convicted as we realize we have faltered in ways along those lines. But then we come to a passage like this and realize not only is this calling me to that kind of conviction, which is a good thing, it's calling me to obedience, but it's also depicting for me uh, the one who came and did all of these things perfectly and ultimately leads us in a place of rest because of Christ's obedience. Because of Christ's obedience, I'm in a place of refreshment under a passage like this, knowing as I look to him, I look to the perfect king who delivers. I look to the perfect king who enters the danger according to the will of God without fail. I look to the king who's not ultimately defeated, but who ultimately rises again to bring life to me. And as we consider these things, we're not left in a place of languishing, recognizing our failures, but we're left in a place that's motivated by Jesus' own gospel love for us which is exactly what we read in our part in this morning. If God is for us, who can be against us? If this is the one we have, how can we ultimately ever be left thinking that the wilderness will be the final word in our life? And so we bring these things to mind. They're important things to consider. The Lord's word of guidance in the wilderness. You know, and in our sphere of responsibilities, we can remember that there, there are no special circumstances that excuse me from obedience. It's important to remember. And then, and then in, in those unique places where I need rescuing clarity, where things are going badly and I need to see a faithful way through these things, we can ask the question with our Bibles open, will, will I, will the people with me be safe if we stay in this condition? And we can answer those according, according to the Bible. And then in all of that, we're ultimately directed to the, to the perfect obeyer, to the Lord Jesus, who ultimately uh, preserves us and pays for our failures and brings us into a place of final rest. And so the hymn writer can say things like, the Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. It doesn't say his word my easy days secures. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. It's interesting that the hymn writer recognizes his need for a shield right, and his need for a portion. Because oftentimes we can feel like David must have felt here. We can feel exposed. But with the Lord and in a life of obedience, we ultimately find ourselves in a place of rest through who Jesus is and what he does for us. And so we're thankful to God for his word and the reminders that he gives to us. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that we would be renewed in your truth this morning. We would be lifted up by it, built up by it, prepared to live a life of obedience. And as we all recognize our weakness, even in our failures, we're thankful that we can come to Jesus who lived the perfect life of obedience, brings us forgiveness, and not just that, but he brings us restorative grace to continue in the way that leads to life. And we praise you for that. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for your perfect kingship. And we rest in that and trust in your continued care. Uh, we, we bring these things in Jesus' name to you, holy God. Amen.